Father, what a privilege it is that we can come into your very presence and sit at your feet. Oh, wow, what a blessing, and I'm so thankful. We love you, Jesus. We are so thankful for what you've done for us, that you, you took on human form and you became like us. I cannot even imagine, Lord, how hard that had to have been, and just the, the humiliation of it, and and just the difficulty of, of having been God limited by flesh and blood, but yet you did it out of such love for us that you might identify with us and share in our struggles and, and be that, that merciful and faithful high priest that sits at the Father's right hand on our behalf, our, our perfect representative. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for doing that for us. And thank you that, I thank you, God, that this morning we can just walk into your word, into the very living, active word, and, and have confidence that you're going to speak to us through it. And we do pray that you will speak to us through it and that you would reprove our hearts and convict us and encourage us and motivate us toward godliness and toward perseverance. Father, thank you so much. Um, we just pray always. I pray every week, Father, that you would just pour out your spirit in this room. And I know that, that he is here, but I just pray for an extra measure and that you would protect us from the evil one and just protect our time so that we can, we can really hear your voice and we can allow your word to penetrate our hearts that we might grow to be more like your son. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time. In your son's name, amen. Okay, good morning. Um, yeah, someone get that door. Oh, it's, um, I, just, I just have to share something personal for a minute. It's been quite a week. For, for us at the Freed Settles household, um, my daughter called Tuesday and said, Mom, they live in Charleston. Governor Nikki Haley has ordered an evacuation starting tomorrow. And it's just, you know, I'm thinking um, about Haiti. What we talked about last week, I'm worried about the Haitians. It never dawned on me that the hurricane was moving toward my kids. And so they left Thursday. They waited till Thursday and left, and God was really kind and gracious as she sent out a prayer request to some friends in Oklahoma, and one of her sorority sisters called and said, my sister lives in Greenville, and she wants you to come and stay there. And so they went and stayed with Catherine and Matt, and they had, they had three kids. They had a little girl, two the same age as our little Vivian, Mary Margaret. How's that for two little Southern girls' names? Vivian and Mary Margaret. <laughs> And um, they even sent me a picture with both of them with their little smocked dresses on. Again, very Southern. They had those on. And um, Sunday morning, they got up to go ahead and head on home, and her water broke. And so Sunday night in Greenville, South Carolina, Audrey Elise was born. And, and I have to brag on my kids because it was, you know, they two strange names. And I'm like, I didn't see that one coming out of the hat. But she says, Mom, here's what they mean. You know, Audrey means something like devoted to God. I can't remember. One of y'all I sent a text to, and Elise has something else to do with God. It was really, they really, you know, I have this one child that's such a godly young woman and married to a godly man and raising their kids to follow Christ, that they choose names that will reflect the character of God. And then those of y'all that know me, and then I have David. <laughs> Who... Noble strength is Audrey, and Elise is pledged to God. And then I have this son that 
We'll only walk in the door of a church, maybe Christmas Eve and for a funeral. So he keeps me humble, but he's not finished yet, and God is not finished with him yet. So we, we just keep praying for him. But anyway, we have a new little burrito in the family, and um, I'm really very excited about it. I cannot wait to get out there and get my hands on those kids, you all that have grandkids. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Anyway, that's our joy for the week. So it's been stressful. I had not, you know, it's interesting as I was getting ready this morning and thinking about this lesson and thinking about these people, because we really need to keep it before us every week, that, that context of who, who is being written to, who is this author, this unknown anonymous author of, of Hebrews writing to, and why is he writing to them? And he is writing to them because they're experiencing persecution. The fires of persecution are intensifying, and it's hard. Their life is very, very hard. And they have the temptation of looking back right there in their backyard at Judaism, and they could go back to that and take the path of least resistance, and that temptation is there because the stress is hard. And, I, and as I, I, thought, I was thinking about that, in, in thinking about how the author this week, we, kinda, we come to that key phrase that I chose for us to have as the title for this semester's course, Consider Jesus, and it's in this passage that we get Consider Jesus. I thought as, you know, it was, I'm, not, I'm really not a worrier, but I discovered Sunday when I totally crashed and Monday when I slept 15 minutes through my alarm clock before I ever heard it, 15 minutes that there was a stress out there of having no control over what this hurricane was doing. And knowing that my kids were safe, and, and again, not really worried about their house. If the house blew away, it blew away. I mean, you rebuild. But concerned that, oh my goodness, if that happens, and they go back with a two-year-old and jobs and a baby, that's going to be horrible to have to deal with the stress of that. And so I, I began to feel feel this, um, by Monday I realized what it was, that the stress of it just hanging out there and knowing I couldn't do anything about it. All we could do was, was pray for all the people involved, you know, get out safely and pray for the people involved. And if you lose things, you lose things, you deal with it. But um, it was truly my little personal lesson and keep your eyes focused on Jesus during the week. So there's, there's how I took the scriptures and made them real in my life this week. So... Okay, we're in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. We've seen where Jesus has been. We've seen where the author has clearly established that Jesus is better than the angels. And now he has another therefore. Therefore, why? What is he doing? That therefore is connecting. It's always connecting us back to something that the author said and pointing us forward to something that he wants to say. How does this, therefore, in verse 1, connect with what he has said previously? how he ties it just in the first few words. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. What He calls them right here holy brothers. What has he just said about Jesus? 
Lynn has alluded to it, but what has he just said about Jesus? But he could then now say, therefore, holy brothers. Look at back in those verses right before if you need to. Turn your Bibles there. Or turn back in your, your observation worksheets and, and review real quickly. What, what had he just said about Jesus? Okay, he made propitiation for the sins. He is our faithful and merciful high priest. Why is he merciful? What did he do in order to make that purification for sins and to become this merciful high priest for us? Hmm? He did what? Say it last. Betty said it. He shared in our humanity. What did, how did the author say it? He shared, he partook of flesh and blood that he might be made like us in every respect so that when we are tempted, he understands how, what we're going through because he himself was tempted. He knows what it was. Remember Philippians 2, he was God. We saw in chapter 1, he was God. He is the creator. He is the one that has so much power that he upholds the universe just by the power, you know, the word of his power. This is God himself, creator of everything. And yet in Philippians, he took the form of a servant, a bondservant, in human flesh. He didn't regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but took on human flesh because he had to, in order to make that propitiation for our sins, he had to be human. But he also had to be sinless human so he had to be fully God. Therefore, because he shared in this humanity with us, because he was in, in, experienced the incarnation and became a man, therefore, holy brethren, you, you who share in a heavenly calling, what are we to do? Because this is the focus of, this is the focus really of the whole book of Hebrews, but really the focus of this week's lesson. What are we to do? What are we commanded to do? What two words? It says them right there. Thank you, Thurman. Consider Jesus. And we want to look at what that really means and what about him we are to consider. Now, did you notice how he's described in the next verse? He is described as, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We've already kind of talked a little bit about high priest in the previous section last week, and it, that theme will get developed even further in the book. But did it seem odd to you that he was called an apostle? Was that odd to you, Genevieve? Okay. As soon as I read the verses, Yeah, because who do we think of as the apostles? Yeah, the 12 that he chose that followed him. Those were the apostles, not Jesus himself. But yet here in the scriptures, he's described as an apostle. So in what sense is he an apostle? Apostle means simply means one sent. So you looked up some verses here, primarily in John. And what did you learn that, that reinforces the idea that Jesus is an apostle? He was what? He was, okay. Okay, what'd you say, Brenda? He was sent. Somebody said something over here. 
Right. Right. What did he keep saying over and over again in John? It's kind of a key phrase in John. Who sent him? Okay, so consider Jesus. He is an apostle, and he is an apostle in that God sent him. He is God's representative messenger, and he is also the high priest. Those are beautiful verses, too, the ones you looked at. For example, in 12, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You know, there are other verses that say, if you see, if you see me, you've seen the Father. You know, he is the word made flesh. He is the physical representation of who, who God is. So he is the one God sent. He is the apostle, the one God sent. Okay. Who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all of his house. Okay, right here, we're gonna, we've clearly established how Jesus is better than the angels, that he's far superior to the angels. Now he brings up Moses. And he's going to tell us some things about Moses. What does he say? How, how are Jesus and Moses similar? What are the similarities? Okay, so if we're talking about him and Moses, okay, they're both faithful. What else? Anything? Yes, June. Okay. They were both sent, weren't they? Yeah, they were both used to communicate God's word because both of them, for both of them, God sent them. Okay? Think about the work that um, Moses did, why God sent him. What, what was the defining work that Moses did? He did. He freed the people from slavery. What's the defining work that Jesus did? He freed the people from the slavery of sin. So both of them, if I think through the text, if I start asking more questions beyond, you know, really looking a little bit deeper into the text, it doesn't say that, but the fact that we're talking about them both says that, that they were both deliverers from slavery. But I think right there, the similarities, pretty much, that's pretty much encompasses the similarities. And from there, they begin, the differences come out. Yes, Norma. Okay. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't think on it. <laughs> uh huh. Uh 
yeah, I, th I think that that would require a much broader answer and a much larger discussion than we're prepared to do right now. <laughs> no, I see why you're saying that, um, but I think it would be broader than what we could do right here. Moses was the, Moses was the, he gave the law. He was the one that gave the law, who, who God gave him the, the commandments, and he was the one that inaugurated that old covenant um, with the, Jesus fulfilled it. That I do know is true. <laughs> okay. Okay. What about differences between these two, the contrast between Moses and Jesus that makes Jesus far superior to Moses? Okay. Okay. Moses is a servant. Where is he a servant? In God's house. And Jesus is a son where? Okay, think about the think about too the fact that he is God and he is over God's house. What implication is there about something about who he is? That he is over the house and that he is God. What does, he, what does he have by nature of who he is? Authority. Yes, he has authority over the house. Because as the son, he's also the heir. And he is the owner of this house. Whereas Moses is just a servant in the house. He is a faithful servant. He is a loyal servant. I thought it was interesting you know, sometimes you go look up where I go look up words in the Greek and it just means what it says um, or doesn't tell me anything new. And I don't know why, but I went and looked up that word servant because I tend to think of certain Greek words that mean servant. And this is a completely different one. It's T-H-E-R-A-P-O-N. It's the only time in the scripture in the New Testament it's used here. And it denotes a faithful friend to one who is superior, who solicitously regards his interest or looks after his affairs, one who serves regardless of whether he is a free man or a slave. And that's just so descriptive of Moses that he was going to serve God and look after his interests and serve him. What a powerful statement about who Moses is, and it gives you a little bit of understanding of why they revered him so much. Okay? Other things that you noticed about the contrast between them. Okay. Okay, so because he is the builder, he is the heir, he's the owner, he's the builder, it gives him what? More glory and honor, doesn't it? So he has more glory and honor as the builder, as the owner, as the one that has authority over the house, as the creator, than Moses, who is just a servant in the house. He is a faithful servant, but he doesn't have the same. And he does. There is some glory and honor in the fact that he so faithfully served God who called him, but it is nowhere in measure to what Jesus has. 
Look also, think also, as far as the fact that Moses was a servant in the house, it was a temporary position, was it not? He served for a particular period of time, and his job was done. And what did we learn about Jesus as God? He is not, his is not a temporary, it is eternal. So for eternity, he has an eternal position a son over the house. You see how when you sit and you kind of think about some of these things and you meditate on them, you can glean more truths out of it. There are times, and there are absolutely times, that we want to read great swaths of Scripture. And it is good to just read a whole book in itself and not try to dissect it like we're doing. And then there are other times where it's good to just sit down and pause on a few verses and really meditate through what, what those verses are saying. And so it's, I thought it was kind of fun. I hope this lesson went hard. I didn't think it was particularly difficult. It was kind of nice just to have, let's just have a little small bit of scripture, a calm before the storm, because next week will be more and it'll be a little harder. I'll just warn you right here. And, and last week that we had, had confusion over what was saying. So it's good to kind of have that break. Okay, Moses also, what was different about him, did you catch this? He testified of the things to come, right? So he, he was just the testifier of what is to come. What was Jesus then? He was the revelation of what was to come. Now, I'm jumping ahead to one of your questions. How, was he, how did he testify to what was to come? What does that mean? He testified to what was to come. Hmm? Yeah, he was a prophet. Yeah, what did we learn when you looked? Well, I don't know what number it is. You looked at some verses. Is it number? No, it's not number four. Number six. Well, you looked at some verses to reinforce the fact that Moses testified to what would be in the future of what would happen, whereas Jesus is the revelation of it. How did Moses testify to what was to come? What are some of these incidents we're talking about here that you read and you looked up in Luke and in John and in Acts? What do these New Testament authors record for us and tell us? Did you get the context in Luke? Where, what was Luke? It was the road to Emmaus. So you have a couple people. You have Cleopas and an unknown person on the road to Emmaus. And, and what happens there? Yeah. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself by saying, you know, we, we, I think we lose sight of how much the Old Testament testifies of who Jesus is. All of it was pointing toward him. All of it was looking for him, prophesying for him, representative of, who, of what uh, he was going to be, you know, the law, the, the tabernacle, all of the, the, the priests. That's why we're calling Jesus a high priest. And we'll, we'll get a better sense of what that means and how it's a fulfillment of what they did in the Old Testament as we move forward in the book. 
but he was able to take those scriptures at a point when there were no New Testament scriptures yet written and say, look, the scriptures you know testify to who I am. And now here I, here I am, I am the revelation of what, what they were saying. John, um, Jesus himself says in John 5, if you believe Mo- Moses, you would believe uh, me, for he wrote of me. He was talking about me when he was writing. It's what he was talking about, and he was revealing who I am. So that is how Moses testified of what was to come, where Jesus is, he's the full revelation. He's the fulfillment of what Moses had been talking about for all of those years and everything that was contained, Moses and the prophets. Does that make, do you all see that? That's, that's one reason I love to study the Old Testament. I love to study the Old Testament. It is so rich. And I feel like by studying the Old Testament, I have a better grasp and a, and a better depth of who Jesus is and what he did when I go back there to the Old Testament. Questions, comments? Anybody? Okay. Jesus is better. Also, I don't know if you picked up on this, and that he has a greater work. We kind of said that in the fact that they were both deliverers, but his, his work was a greater work. Because Moses delivered. He led them out of Egypt. And he ruled over them during the 40 years. I mean, he, he not ruled. He led them. He provided leadership for them in the 40 years in the wilderness. But Jesus is the one that, as we saw last week and the week before, made purification for sins. He was the perfect propitiation that we might be completely forgiven of our sins and delivered from the fear of death. Do you remember that last week? Delivered from the fear of death and the slavery of death into eternal life. So his work is greater. Now, why is the author emphasizing so much these truths about Jesus being greater than Moses? Why Moses? Mm-hmm. 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 This is where you have to kind of step back and say, I'm a Gentile. I wasn't raised in that economy, and I need to look at some things about Moses and try to get a little Jewish mindset in me, why he's emphasizing this and how they would think. I can't can't walk in their shoes, but I can try to reflect and look back and say, what was it for these people? Why, as Diane said, did they revere him so much? that the temptation would, that that would contribute to the temptation to go back to Judaism, to get out of the pressure and the intensity of what they are experiencing. So you looked at a lot of cross-references, and you looked at some verses. It's not exhaustive. We could have done a whole week, just a character study on on Moses. But I, I know there's a lot of things you do know about Moses. I mean, what are some things you know about Moses that makes him so unique? Without even looking at the verses, who was Moses? Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
He does, because one of those verses you all looked at says, you know, he's not like any other prophet. Because I talk to him face to face and mouth to mouth. This, this is my Moses. This is the one, you know, how, how did he get, you know, when Cindy says he could have made a choice, he made a different choice. He could have, how did he even get into the house of royalty? How did he get there? What's the story of Moses? Yeah, the baby in the basket that you learn as a child or when you're working with your children. You know, there had been an order to kill all, you know, kill all the infant boys born because the slaves are just multiplying like rabbits and it's scaring the Pharaoh that they're getting to be so many. But the midwives didn't do it. They would use the excuse, well, we didn't get there. They just, those, those Hebrew women have their babies so fast, we can't get there. And uh, his mother saved him by putting him in the basket, the reed basket, and floating down the river. And then um, the royalty, the, what is it, the prince's daughter? You can tell I haven't read this in a long time. <laughs> uh, finds him and takes him in and raises him. And it is later that he realizes, that I'm really not of these people. Those people are my people. But he gets in trouble because he kills someone and he has to flee to the wilderness. And when he is in the wilderness, what happens to him there? Who appears to him? God appears to him and commissions him as an apostle, as one sent, to go do what? Yeah, I am sending you to deliver my people from the hands of Pharaoh. And I'm not sure he was too excited about that call in that initial conversation as well. Most of us would not be. But this is the man that did in great faith and on God's bidding and God's calling went and, and appeared before Pharaoh, the king, the greatest king in the land, and said, God wants you to let my people go. And he is the one that is, is in the initiator, through, you know, God through him in all those plagues that then eventually bring them out, and he leads them out of, of this bondage out of Egypt. So he, he is a great man, but look at some of the other verses. We've mentioned some things. What are some other things as you read those verses that you learned about Moses? Uh-huh. Yeah, why did he get angry with them? Did you notice there were two times he was angry with them. What was the first time? Yeah, when I give you, when you see these verses, I'm not get, you need to kind of just skim back. Look at the titles, the little headings in your Bible. Look back and say, okay, what was going on? You just have to read the little caption. Okay, this was the golden calf incident while Moses is up on the mount. And how, and how does God respond? Then, he's, he's a little angry. Right? And what does he say? Did you pick up on that? Yeah, I'll just destroy you. I'll destroy them and build a house out of you, Moses. And yet you see Moses implore the Lord and intercede on their behalf. 
when the Lord in his wrath wants to just consume them. Moses does this. What was the second incident? What triggered, this, what triggered God wanting to wipe out Israel a second time? Yeah, we're going to look at that text next week um, in a little more depth as well because it's going to tie into the rest of chapter um, 3 and into 4. They'd sent the spies into the land, the promised land that God had brought them out to then deliver them into. And you all know the story. They see all that the land has to give, the, the bounty of the land. They bring back some of the bounty of the land. And they say, it is indeed flowing with milk and honey. But there's giants in the land. And there's big cities, and I don't think we can conquer them. And only two people say, if God said, we can, we can. But the others don't. And how do the Israelites respond when they get this news? They do not want to go. And why did you bring us out just for us now to get obliterated by these people that are greater and mightier and in larger number than us? And they murmur and they complain. And God, in his anger at them, again says, I'll just I'll, I'll consume them and I'll make a house out of, of you, Moses. And I think it was at this passage, it was this one or the other one that go, you see God saying to Moses, your people are saying this, and your people. Did you notice that? He's saying, your people, Moses. Look at what your people have done. And Moses intervenes on their behalf and again implores, implores the Lord. How does he, what does he say? How does he intercede on their behalf? What does he say? about them. Did you write that down? Did you look at it? Right. Yeah. What will God, you know, what would the rest of all these other nations say about you if you brought your people out to then just destroy them? What Won't that belittle the name of Yahweh if you do that. And so you see Moses stepping in and, and imploring on their behalf. You see that? Do you see why they would have such a great admiration for this man? Yes, Catherine. So Moses Yes, they do. There's a difference. What? No. What I would say is watch how the book unfolds. Watch how it all unfolds. Would you, would you agree with that, Jim? As we continue on and you get more, you see the author's um, points and the arguments he makes and how he establishes the superiority of Jesus, I think it will become very, very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-
It is very interesting. Because he is God. Fulfillment of the revelation versus that which was testified. The, I think to me what answers it, I mean, I agree with you. What I think we're gonna, we are going to see it more as, as the book unfolds. You'll see a greater layer of it. But just the fact that he has the greater work. What is the interceding? He, he's, he's not, the interceding is the propitiation and the purification for our sins. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew writer is going to say, but the blood of bulls and goats does nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a shadow of Christ, mm-hmm. which is, again, Christ. That's the beauty of it. See, I think that brings us right to that question when it says, consider Jesus. And this was your question, Jim. What are the qualities, and they asked, the, what does it say, qualities, traits that we are to consider? What aspects of him are we to consider when we when we look at this? We look at this imperative. Consider him. Well, first of all, what, is, what do you? What is considering? Just think about this. Park on that word for a minute. If I'm going to consider him, what am I doing? What's consider mean? Think about. It really means to to uh, contemplate, to meditate on, to put your mind in in action and use. The God-given ability to think about these things that have just been said about him and what do they really mean and what is the full implication of them. So if I ask the question, as Jim asked, which, what aspects, qualities, or traits are we to consider and what are these considerations intended to do? What are the, what are the things about him I'm to consider? Did you do it? I really meant to put in there a question that I completely forgot, and when, when I shot off an email with the lesson for those that missed, I, I forgot again. 
to just challenge you to just take, take just even five minutes, just five minutes and do it this week if you can and just sit with it quiet and contemplate the, the qualities and the traits that you're learning in here of who he is and spend some time praying with him and praising him and see what happens. So answer the question, what aspects, what qualities, what traits are we to consider from this text that the, the author wants us to focus our minds on? Oh, Lynn. What else? Somebody else, other thoughts? Yeah, Karen. While you do that. Right? Yeah. Um, what are you wanting to do? I'm really, really mad, and I just want to cuss my friend out and let her have it. Okay? But why don't we just consider Jesus? And, and, to, and I mean this. Like, to move beyond the, yeah, that's bad. I, that is such a childish way. And it's always disappointing to me that when in myself or others, that's the only way we know how to do 
suffering of Christ. That's what I want to be spending my life. Mm -hmm. But when you consider Jesus, consider him in his fullness and then talk to me about how you're going to hold a grudge. Consider Jesus and then tell me how you're going to continue this inappropriate relationship with someone. Mm -hmm. Consider Jesus and then tell me how you're going to talk about how shopping is the greatest thing in the world. And I just love to shop more than anything else. I would rather die than not shop. Or, or, I mean, honestly, whatever it might be, tell me how you can't worship Sunday because of the football team at a point block in the fourth quarter. Uh -huh. Consider Jesus, and then tell me how you're having a heart. I mean, literally, think about all those things. Tell me how you will say, I can't forgive my spouse for what they have done to me, and then that in the concept of considering like it is it is crazy how much of our Christian life needs to be in that conscious state. And what we all say is, well we can't live like that. Okay, then don't consider Jesus. You don't need that. Don't consider him. But truly then if you don't want to, don't consider him. But it's a beautiful talk to think through and not just the childish yeah we shouldn't do that that's bad for I agree. Yeah. Think think deeper. Think deeper. Mm -hmm. You know what you said, Jim. Well, we can't live that way. I'm thinking about next week where it says, exhort each other every day that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So apparently we can, we can do it. We need each other to do it. But, but it is doable to live that way. And it does change how you live. When It changes how a friend of mine, I love what she says, I think Walmart, I'm sorry, this is not very spiritual, but Walmart is the biggest test of your sanctification. And she will say, she put on Facebook about four years ago, she goes, if you think sanctification follows you into Walmart after church, you would be most mistaken. <laughs> And she texted me this Sunday morning. She was going to Walmart before church. And she says, my depravity is showing. That is why, because I'm at Walmart. That is why I am a good Calvinist. Because <laughs> she is. Is it does. It really brings out the depravity dealing with Walmart. It's terrible. It's... Can you tell I hate Walmart? So, anyway... Um, I think we've covered a lot of this except for the one um, statement. Well, well, first of all, back up a little bit when you talk about the house. Um, and a point I would make different uh, that's a contrast between them. The house is obviously, it's, it's the people of God. You all saw that. But Moses also built, he also was the builder of the tabernacle. He was the builder of a physical house. And Jesus is the builder of a spiritual house. You know, a, a people of God that he is bringing together to be in special relationship with him. And that's who we are. And we are his. And that brings us to that one verse that I'm going to close on. And we can, we can make a few comments and then I'm just going to let it hang there. Uh, in verse, in the last, let me find my scripture. I'm sorry, I have too many pages here because I didn't pick up a lesson, so I didn't get them front and back. We are his house, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting to the end. 
and and what I'll do, we've got five we got four minutes. So what does he mean by if if we hold fast? Did you struggle with that? No. Or was it clear to you? How did First Corinthians help you understand that? And we'll talk about this more next week because next week's lesson we're going to have another if, another kind of if we hold fast. So if it's not clear this week, we'll make it as clear as mud for you next week as well. <laughs> Thoughts or comments? Well, yes, Yeah. Yeah. But it's not to be a passive thing. Right. right. Hold fast. Right. Hold fast. Number one, don't go back. Don't go back. You can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. You can't go back to Moses. You can't go back to the law. Jesus is the perfect revelation and fulfillment of it. There's nothing to go back to. So we're writing these people that are they're needing the encouragement and the exhortation. Hold fast. Hold fast to your confidence to the end. And, you, and I believe it's you will, if you are truly his, you will hold fast. I, that's what, where I stand on that. You will hold fast. But I'm encouraging you to hold fast. Don't slip back. Don't waver. Don't doubt. Don't be tempted by something that is lesser than. Look at what you have. Cling to that. That's what's going to hold you. Hold on to it. Because firm until the end because the reward is great and the reward is there and you want it. And it is worth enduring temporary persecution and affliction. And I know that's true. Comments, thoughts? Jim, do you want to add anything? Okay. Any questions? Okay, let's take a short break. And again, what we are going to do in the second half of this is kind of pick up theologically um, where uh, we've kind of left off a little bit. And then try to try to think about uh, in, that, in that last conversation, that last discussion, I think is going to be really helpful for us in a couple of different ways. So uh, my two goals that I have for this uh, this time, the the first one is to uh, kind of think through a uh, methodology, like a, an important process when we're studying the Bible. Um, and so we'll look at just, hey, this is how you need to, when you're looking at the scriptures, this is one of the important things about remembering, uh, I guess, the, the, the specifics of how to do Bible study. Um, so often what we do, and I always use the phrase, keep your head down and don't look up, is that when we're looking at particular ideas or principles in a text, uh, we start reading something, and then when I say, what does it mean, people look up. So you read a text and you describe something. Uh, and then I say, well, what consider Jesus? Well, what does that mean? And then they begin, they look up. Well, I mean, I was considering the other day that Mary gave birth to him, and I think that's kind of cool. And okay, that's true, I guess. There, Mary did give birth to Jesus, and it's kind of an interesting thing. And Christmas is coming up. Okay, good. Anything else? And someone else will say, well, you know, I was considering the fact that, you know, man, he was 12 years old. He's in the temple, and he's just teaching them. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is amazing. That's kind of a cool story, too. Anything else? We just randomly pick true things, and we focus on them. But that's not how the material in the New Testament actually comes to us. 
Um, the, the writers don't just say, consider Jesus, love Paul, right? You don't get that. Paul's driving towards something. He is answering questions, objections. He is calling people to some very specific things. And therefore, it becomes critical to keep your head down. Because if not, and this is where we get into trouble, is when we take generic things about Jesus and we try to apply them to our lives, okay? And I'm going to tell you this. I'm not even so much at this point worried that you're going to get it wrong. I'm just going to worry that all you have in your storehouse of consider Jesus is a small arsenal to deal with big problems in life. I mean, tell me this. The majority of people that you know, do they go, oh, here's the good news. The good news is that when I think of my problems and then I think of Jesus, I just think, oh, I mean, my problems are small in comparison to Jesus. I was literally thinking about it. I was thinking the other day about all of my problems, and then I thought about Jesus, and I was like, this is crazy. Why am I even worrying about this? Why am I fretting about this? Man, I'm glad I got to think about you. How many, how many of you know people who are always complaining that their problems are small and Jesus is huge? Yeah, me too. Never. I, I'm not kidding. In now, can I count this up? Like 27 years of ministry? It's crazy. 20, I still think of myself as like 26. Don't tell me I'm not. Ryan says if I put my glasses here, I'm like 58. If I put them, if I put them here, I'm 48. But he says if I do this, I could be 28. I don't think he's, I don't think he's telling me the truth. But, um, but in my 27 years of ministry, I've never had someone come to me and say kind of that, that, that this is where I'm at in the moment of the problem. Nobody comes to me and says, well, the good news is in comparison to God and in comparison to Jesus, my troubles are small. Nobody says that to me. They come back later after God has taken care of their circumstances or the circumstances under God's sovereign direction have taken care of themselves, but it's always God's sovereign direction. Um, after that happens, they come and say, I can't believe I worried about that. That was so silly. They do say that. I've had that, right? Let's be honest. I just have nobody coming to me in the heat of it and say, I listed all of my problems and... Here's the good news. I don't have anything to worry about. So why? Like, why is it that you and I, not other people, why is it that you and I see our problems as so much bigger than Jesus? And you want to know why? Because we don't think specifically enough about him. We don't spend the time necessary. Nancy did a great job challenging us on that. Like, how many of you just said, hey, what I need to do right now is I need to just stop and I need to think about Jesus in his totality. And I'm going to spend 30 minutes. Literally, that's, that's not crazy, right? 30 minutes isn't crazy. You don't look at me and go, who has 30 minutes? No, no, no. Now, listen, I know husbands, wives, we always complain we don't have 30 minutes, but we both know we're lying, right? We all have 30 minutes. To just think about the totality of God and the bigness of him, and the sovereignty of him. Okay? Now, here's another thing that we need to remember, is that the Gospels, or the letters of the Bible, were actually written for people in real circumstances. Okay? So, every Gospel and every letter was written 
not just generically. I mean, the most generic that we could probably say would be Ephesians, where Paul is writing to a church that he knows well, but it seems to be a general letter. And yet in that general letter, he doesn't just go, consider Jesus and how, how big he was and how nice he was. He was so nice. And think about like how big he is. Have I said big yet? And then just consider about like just how, how nice he is and how much he's done for you and, um, and just how much he's done for you. It's not what he says. As, G, as Paul begins to outline who Jesus Christ is, he gets crazy specific. He has given you peace, Paul says, by purchasing your pardon through his blood on the cross. Well, that's kind of specific. And he goes off on God who predestined you, who didn't just predestined you, he predestined you in Christ so that you might, and he goes on, to be the praise of his glory. And Paul goes on and on, waxing on and on about what God has done for us in Christ. Okay, you need to consider Jesus. What do you want to consider about him? Man, he's so big. And, and this is why when our thoughts about him don't match our thoughts about our problems or our temptations or our circumstances, guess who wins? How much time do you spend thinking about what you're worrying about? Anybody get trapped there? I do. I promise. I mean, I wish I could sit here and go, oh, yeah, the good news is this is so not me. No, this is so me. I can think about 50 problems and 33 reasons why it's not going to work, and I can get so wrapped up in um, all of these things, and I give very little. I give much credence to my doubt and to difficult circumstances. And, and, and the good news is, by God's grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I don't just want to chuck it all. Okay? That's an undercurrent that I'm so grateful to God for his kindness to me in. I don't chuck it all. But if I, it were to just be left to me, I give way more time and energy looking at things from a worldly perspective than I do a divine one. And here's the scary part. Like, I've never been more divinely focused in my life, and I still feel like I don't do enough. Does that make sense? That you? So then no wonder. In part, and I know it's more complicated than this, so please don't read this too personally. Like, no wonder anxiety runs rampant in our culture. Like, no wonder, like, depression and hopelessness. Again, don't read too much into that statement, okay? I'm not talking the clinical. I'm talking about just the, uh, the part that all of us share in just humanity, right? No wonder it just runs rampant. Why? Because I don't spend enough time considering, and hear me, not, I'm not asking for a generic consider Jesus. I'm talking about like reflecting upon and knowing him, the fullness of him, so that just like the gospel writers who say, I want to give you this picture of Jesus, a picture of Jesus who can calm the storm, this picture of Jesus who can, can, can rise up and, and say to people, 
Your sins are forgiven. And when confronted, says, oh, you think that's hard to say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up or take your mat and walk. So that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority over sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. That story was designed to give somebody encouragement. See how that's really not generic? See how true that is? And the more that, by the way, here, here's, here's the beauty of it. I do not believe that the more that we consider even the specific things about Jesus, it doesn't make our problems nothing. I would argue the gap that still exists between us and Jesus, between us and our Heavenly Father, okay? Which, by the way, is um, in that gap is the Holy Spirit. So to try to think there's nothing in the gap is crazy. It's just bad theology. No, the Holy Spirit. But there is still a gap between the now and the not yet, okay? So it's okay for you to say, but I still worry some. How, how do you worry? What do you do when you worry? Oh, well, it's easy. I just sit in bed and cry. You have another plan? Well, sometimes I eat too much. You have another plan? Yeah, I like I watch just television. You know, I mean, <laughs> really? That's your plan? Yeah, that's my plan. Hmm, okay. How's that working for you? Not well. Okay, just checking. So when you look at it, like, I mean, when we consider Jesus, we put our problems and our difficulties in light of these particular portraits of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what I would say, like, what are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with? Have you purposefully began to mine the scriptures so that your understanding of who God is truly matches up and then crazily what you're going through. That's what you should be doing, by the way. What, do you, what, what, what portrait of God do you need? And this is what the gospel writers did. Mark is writing to a persecuted church, and his picture of Jesus is the suffering servant. Okay? Matthew is writing to a strongly Jewish church, and much like the Hebrew writer, Matthew wants the... Um, uh, the, the, the early churches that he is speaking to from a Jewish background to have no doubt that Jesus is the promised Messiah. No doubt that he is a descendant of Abraham and a king replacing David. I just don't want you to doubt that. And do you get that from Matthew's gospel? This king that kind of rises, this king that replaces anything you could want in any, see how he does that? Right? Luke has his emphasis. John has his. I write these things John chapter uh, 20, verses 30 and 31. I write these things to you so that you might believe and that by believing, you have hope in his name. And that's why he focuses so much. When you go back and you look at that statement and you go back and how he arranges the narratives, it's why. It's because this is what he needs. I'll give you a, a quick comparison. It's like if you have a child who is afraid of a storm, you know, because they live in Oklahoma and they're afraid of a storm, can you think of a story that you could tell about Jesus to help your child? Right? Yeah. Calming the storm. Or you could tell the story of Noah. <laughs> that would just be for fun. Um, but you tell the story. I had to think about that. That's probably the story I would tell. Well, one time, they just flooded the world, and everybody died. Nice, sweetheart. Okay, 
But this becomes the, um, the precision of thinking about God that matters. And that's why what I've loved about years with you people is that hopefully that you can go back and you can actually see that your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is is deeper and you can begin to mine it. You know what I'm talking about? If you can go back and you can begin to mine it. And so you might not have as much as you want. I know I don't. I don't, I don't have anywhere near the amount of knowledge in terms of who he is and even the experiences with him because that's part of knowing him. I don't have near as much as I would like. Okay? It's actually one of the reasons why I've felt as I've gotten older to, to travel to different parts of the world because one of my greatest struggles is so much of the world is going to hell and it fascinates me. And I don't just mean that in a distant observing aspect of it. Like when I'm standing with 19 million Japanese people, 98 to 99.2% of them who are willfully going to hell, that just kind of erases my board, so to speak. You know what I mean? Really, and that's why I need to be there, to be honest with you. I need to, I need to just sit at the Osaka station, and, and I can be brutally, sadly, like try to cry. I wish I could just say the tears come easy. Sometimes they don't. I'm thinking, okay, but this is the complexity of this. And can Jesus, can Jesus handle this? Right? That was one of my great conversations with the guy that went with me, Brady Moore. And, and he had to rethink some things about God. Man, there's so many people that are lost. Why isn't God doing something? He needs a picture of God. Where do you get that from? The Bible. Have you been mining it? like that? Do you have like a mine in you so that you can go back during the adversities, during the difficulties? I would even argue during the successes of life because sometimes they're the worst. When things are going well are easily when they're the worst. The hardest time in my marriage, the hardest time, my kids were really, really young, but the hardest time was when everything seemed like it was going great. And that was when Andrea would tell you we were at our worst. Fascinating. Consider Jesus. So I, I want you to do this. I want you to look back. So that's kind of the overarching idea. Now I want to, I want to do this. When you look at Hebrews chapter 3, I want to, I want to kind of read our text again. And... Uh, Think about some specifics, and, and hear me. So there's interpretation and there's application. So you'll find something in this, and then I want you to go somewhere else to find something. Okay, so you find something in here, and then I want you to go somewhere else to find something. That's going to be my assignment for us. Um, the Hebrew writer says, Jesus, sorry, therefore, first word. So when, again, Nancy says this all the time, right? When you see the word therefore, what do you do? See what it's there for. So you look back, don't you? So we will do that in a moment. Therefore, okay, when I see that, it's like, I've just said something really, really important. You might want to go back and see what that is. We'll do that in a second, but that's what that word means. Go back and check what I've just concluded on. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So that doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's not just... Chapter 1, verse 1, consider Jesus. No, it's therefore, 
holy brothers, who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. We talked about that. Who is faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus is faithful to who? God. Jesus is God and he's faithful to God. So we do have the divinity of Christ, but also the humanity of Christ. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, or every house that is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ, interesting, think about this, his title. Right? So a Jew reading that would hear what? But what? But the Messiah. But Meshach. That's, again, Jesus, but he, he refers to his title there, which is significant. But Messiah is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Okay? So now what are we going to do? We are going to build confidence, and we are going to build hope. Okay? As we consider Jesus, what does it do? It builds confidence, and it builds hope. Okay? One of the other, one, one of the other is it not the other time, Nancy? I think you made reference to this. Is it 1024, therefore encourage? Is that the 1024, kind of just consider the times and therefore, as, as you know, every day do this. Uh, I love the reminder that this word here, and I'm indebted to one of my former students in TA, Michael DeFazio, who helped me understand that this word, I don't know how I missed it, but he, I remember him doing a paper one time, and he pointed it out that the word encourage is to instill courage. Yes. Yeah. So let us consider. Same word is here. By the way, only two times that word is used in this text or in this in this book. The chapter twelve word for consider is a different word, and that word is a hapax legomena, which means it's only used once in the Bible. Okay. The consider Jesus in chapter twelve. Is actually a different, completely different word. It's analagizomai, different word than this one. So the, the, what we're dealing with here is confidence and hope, which I think this is a bit of the backdrop concept here, to instill courage in us. And I, again, I'm, this is kind of just, this is more Jim preaching here. Um, I think one of the reasons why we don't do a good job instilling courage in one another is because our encouragements are shallow. Our encouragements feel a little bit like we're an American Idol. You know what I mean? Literally. We, it, I just When people offer me certain encouragement, I can just tell they're just sweet. And so I, I read it as sweet and not substantive. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like when your mom's talking to you, and you know, well, she means well, but she's my mom. Like, why do people say that? I've never understood that. 
Like, why is your mom lying to you all the time? Well, she's trying to make me feel better. Is it working? Not at all. It's not. I'm, do, do you moms know this? Now, here's what's weird. The beauty of it is when they're like 58, they begin to appreciate it again. Is that not true? How many of you began to appreciate all the fluffy things your mom told you on the other side of having your own kids? But in the middle of it, I mean, I promise you, my mom told me that I was the most important, special, beautiful boy in the world. And I'm just like, well, then can you get Heather McComb to dig me? Because that's what I want. <laughs> Only Heather McComb was my mom. I would have been the happiest guy in the world. Like, mom, can you talk to Heather? Because I, I can't breathe without that woman. Actually, we were in the fourth grade, so that young girl, right? So here's the issue. To instill courage, to encourage one another, you can't do it with fluffy accolades. You can't do it by promising things that aren't promisable. Last night when we gathered around a young lady who's going in for some removal of a melanoma today, okay, what do you want me to say? Me to lie to her? You want me to lie to her and say, hey, you know, here's the good news. God would never let anything bad ever happen to you. Yeah, then how did I get a melanoma? True? So do I say nothing? No, the only courage that I can muster, this is the beauty of it, the only courage I can muster does not ignore the problem. It just it focuses on the, gre the greater and the deeper truth. And so I think we did. Patty, did we not? I think we did instill courage in her. I, I told the story, and others did, prayed the story of a God who is truly good. We, we talked in this lengthy prayer about God's goodness. We told goodness stories over and over. God's goodness and his, and his love and his goodness, which is real. And then we began to talk about his power, right? That's real. Like, that will, that will help with courage. But to just lie, nobody likes that. At best, people know what you're doing, and they, they placate you. They're, uh, thanks, you're, you're sweet. But that's not what the Hebrew writer is doing. The Hebrew writer just basically said, therefore, da, 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 consider Jesus. Now, the rest of chapter 3 and even parts of chapter 2 are... Um, uh, an encouragement to keep them from acting like Israel. Okay, chapter 3 fold this way. Therefore consider this Jesus, who is greater than Moses, and Moses, when he told the people, they messed up. And you better not be like them. That's kind of the overarching idea, okay? But as Nancy pointed out at the very beginning of this lesson, I don't know if you were paying attention, but you know this from past conversations, the context of encouragement from truth, and confidence and hope are not generic. Is it the kind of confidence that I can make a three-pointer? That kind of confidence? Confidence that I can get a really good job so I can buy an SUV? That kind of confidence? Is that the kind of confidence? Which, by the way, is usually the kind of confidence we want our kids to have, that they will be able to achieve. Not spiritual confidence. We offer them self-centered confidence. Think about it. How much have you encouraged your kids spiritually? No, we usually spend it in a completely different direction. But what he is doing is his confidence and the hope that he is having in considering Jesus, this one who did this, who was faithful over the whole house, like a builder is faithful 
who is like a son, what he is describing here, actually comes from chapter 2. Because the context of the audience, what are the audience, what is the audience here, okay? What is the circumstances that the audience is living under? What? Persecution. Suffering. For what? For their identity. Their allegiance. To Jesus. So that's the context. Don't ever lose sight of the context. Now, well, hear me. Yours is different than that. I'm not, that's fine. I'm totally good with you saying, yeah, but mine is different. I, I need to just think about me. Well, then go think about you. Just don't take your Bible with you. Because we need to understand that what this text is designed to do and the kind of hope and the kind of confidence is to shade or to protect people who are dealing with these issues. Because of my allegiance to Christ, because of my identity and the fact that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that is my confession. That is my claim. And for that reason, I am facing a barrage of attacks against me. Consider Jesus. Okay? This is why a lot of the songs that we think, sing, you don't really believe. Like, if God is for me, then who can be against me? Nobody can be against me because God is for me because greater is... I'm writing this song as I go. Because um, he that is for me is greater than he that is in the world. And that's why I'm greater than... And you hear that and you go, man, I sure don't feel greater than. You ever, have you ever sung a song talking about God's protection and God's got you and you're going, I'm singing it, I'm not feeling it. Anybody done that? You want to know why? I'll tell you why. It's because God's protection... That's even a word that you can't define on your own terms. You have to define it on his, just like the psalmist does. That protection, I'll use another umbrella here, that protection clearly stands for those who are... And that being accomplished. You see how that's different? So here's what I do. So God is for me. Who can be against me? What are you for? Um, I want to buy a Subaru. <laughs> and God's for me. Really? Yeah, I don't understand why God won't let me buy my Subaru. Like, I just, I don't understand what God's doing. No, hear me. You can laugh at Subaru, but you don't have your own little dream. You don't have your own little agenda. You don't have your own little kingdom. That's the issue. And you want to know why God, I mean, I know pastors that wrestle with this because why isn't God growing my church? Okay? and It's his stinking church, not yours, so just be quiet. It's his church, and he's going to accomplish it. Why God won't do what I want him to do in my marriage or with my kids because it's my marriage and it's my, I mean, it, can you see where the problem is? And so often, the issue becomes is I want God's protection on Jimdom. 
That's what I want is protection on. Jimdom. My vision, my plan, my hopes, my dreams, and you owe me. That's how we sing. And whenever I meet with somebody and they tell me God's not coming through, I ask, on what? Here's what God's not coming through on. And they tell me, and I'm like, I, I don't expect God to come through on that either. The Bible actually says he doesn't really care about that. Actually, some of those things that you really like, he hates, by the way. Like, he hates some of those things. So, actually, what God is doing is fighting against you. And we don't want to admit that. Like, God fights against me like a father disciplining his son, saying, I know you want these things, and you need to stop wanting these things. That's what you need to do. You need to grow up, son. What kind of father would tell a son to grow up? Oh, yeah, good one. So I want you to do this, truly, another exercise. Go back and think of the songs that we sing and the times where you feel like it's not real and you don't have God's provision and you don't have God's protection and you don't have God's ask, what am I frustrated with? And you'll quickly find out, like I have done numerous times, and it is embarrassing, that my frustration is, is that I've built something over here, okay? You can even call it a church, actually. Like, I built something over here, and it is outside. I won't even need, it doesn't have to be a sin, okay? It's just outside of God's purposes. It doesn't have to even be evil. And I wonder why God's letting it happen. Paul says that as we go through life, what we find out are there are things that we build that are wood and straw, and they burn up. And then those things which are true, they last forever. And that's true about churches. It's true about ministries. It's true about marriages. It's true about raising kids. It's true about your job. It's true about everything. And it is in that context that the Hebrew writer says, I want you to consider these things about Jesus. Okay? So chapter 2, take a look back. I'll give you a few minutes here. Take a look back. And you'll, you'll see how beautiful it actually is. By the way, he begins in chapter 1, or in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore we must pay closer attention, which is different than the word consider, but it's the same idea, right? Pay close attention, consider, spend time looking at, pondering, reflecting, going over. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we might drift away. As he goes through and he talks about Jesus, the founder of our salvation, what are some things that they, let's start with them, they need to consider about Jesus for the sake of time? Look at verse 9, which is somewhat of a climactic, not of the whole section, but definitely of that pericope or that paragraph. But we see him, who's him? Jesus. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. By the way, don't read too much into that statement. We are higher in many regards and lower in some regards. So to be made a little lower than the angels is just a euphemism for humanity. Okay? So we see him who is made human, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Oh, that is so, because that's him, right? So Jesus has glory and honor, why? Well, because he's Jesus. Okay, can you like 
oh, you want me to keep my head down? Oh, okay, let me, let me see why Jesus was crowned with glory. How many of you like glory? We do. How many of you like honor? I do. How do we get glory and honor? How did Jesus get glory and honor? Look at verse, look at the next verse. Or the next part of that verse. Because of the suffering of death. So how was, I mean, think about Philippians 2. Looking at the whole, Philippians 2. Why was Jesus exalted to the name above every other name? So that at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what ends? To the glory of God the Father. What, what happened in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11? Emptied himself and emptied himself and emptied himself and emptied himself and emptied himself to the point of death. Therefore, God exalted him, right? This is the Jesus that they want these people to consider. Okay? So what are these people asking? Look how, look how simple this is. It's embarrassing to even say this to you. Why do we have to suffer? I don't know. Why don't you think about Jesus for a moment? I will. He was so popular. Not that part. Okay. He was so beautiful. Not that part. Okay. And you keep wandering through the life of Jesus. So what, I guess, what part of Jesus do you want me to consider? I don't know. What part are you going through? Suffering? Okay. Let's try this again. You can do this. Can, right? Connect the dots. Suffering. So we all want to get through to the glory and to the honor. How do we get there in this world? Now here's where it gets interesting. Through suffering. So do we seek suffering? No, we don't seek suffering. Because suffering is not the goal. What is the goal? To be like Christ. And here's what I promise. Whatever suffering you and I go through, whatever that is, that's not, that's not the issue. We need to pursue Christ. And this is what you and I do anyway. You and I kind of learn in small and big ways, that's going to be costly. I don't want to do that. And so we shy away from it. We shy away from it. And I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, we're persecuted because I got teased in the seventh grade. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, so you don't have to line up with it perfectly, but realize that when we go through life, when we go through difficulties, we need to consider Jesus, who, because of the suffering of death, then look at this, so that, purpose statement, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So why did Jesus suffer? Option one, God hated him. That makes sense? Okay, so it's not that one. So suffering doesn't come because God hates someone, because that doesn't fit with the narrative. Okay, so then why did he suffer? Because only through suffering can people understand who God is. Huh. Kind of an interesting statement. But again, it seems to be about suffering, doesn't it? What was the plan of God for Christ? That he what? That he would be the propitiation of our sins, which is where the text is going to end in chapter 2, right? that he would absorb the wrath of God, God himself became sin so that we might become 
his righteousness. So that is the plan of God. Not suffering, but the plan is, is that he might accomplish that end. And Jesus was willing to do anything to get there. And that end meant suffering for him. Paul's end meant suffering for him. I would argue for you and I, there is a road and a path, and I'm totally cool with God working it out. Just tell me that you care more about the kingdom than your comfort. That you care more about the kingdom, this is a tough one for me, than my reputation. That I care more about the kingdom than I do, let me think, anything else. Because then when, they, when that's it, when it is the kingdom and the king, Christ, when it is the kingdom and Christ the king that becomes my goal and that becomes my objective, whatever comes my way, whatever I go through, that's not for me to determine and it will not deter me. You know, you want to bring it, bring it. What is it going to mean? Well, it's going to mean you're going to lose. I'm ready to lose it. Okay, I'm talking your health. I'm ready to give it. Okay, I'm talking your family. I'm ready to lose it. Okay, that's the picture that we clearly see here. I want you to consider from chapter 3, I want you to consider him who is this builder, who is all of these things, but they're already, they're kind of coming out of chapter 2 going, like, this is who Jesus is. He is the sufferer who does not veer from God's plan because of adversity, because of suffering. Instead, what does he do? And this is what we should do. When we go through adversity, we ask the question, who am I? What am I about? What am I doing? And if the problem becomes, well, here's why we're going through it. We're going through it because it's like it's in our way. It's in our path. It is, it is the road that God has for me. Okay, then let's do this. You know what Paul says in Acts chapter 20? This is a very interesting thing. I know the Holy Spirit usually helps you like it does me like how to, you know, match shoes with socks and whether or not that matches the belt. I mean, those kind of important things. Um, uh, most people, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, it's just this really groovy, helpful person that only has cool things to say to you. Paul says this. I'm, I'm leaving now, and I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing that I will live. Actually, I think I'm going to die there, is what he says. And then he says this to them, because they're like, oh, uh-uh, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Because it's God's plan for me. And I just can't see me living past this. I just, that's Paul thought. I can't see me making it out of Jerusalem alive. And kind of, if you look at Luke's material, the way he portrays Luke, or the way Luke portrays Paul going to Jerusalem is very similar to Jesus going to Jerusalem. They're very interesting parallels. What happens to Jesus when he goes to Jerusalem the last time? Paul seems to be thinking that way. Now, he doesn't die there, interestingly enough. So, Paul, you're not Jesus. No, so let's calm down, okay? But then he says this about the Holy Spirit. Only knowing this, the Holy Spirit promises me that everywhere I go, that prisons and await. So the Holy Spirit tells him all the time. What do I got coming for me? Prisons and hardships? Now, here's what would be a wrong way to apply that. That'd be true for every Christian if we really were Christians. Actually, that's not what the text is saying, and it's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does teach that do not be surprised when these things come to you. 
Actually, consider them, what does James the writer say? Consider them what? Pure joy or all joy when these things come. For we know that by these things, these things are developed in us. So should we pursue those things? No. Here's the beauty of it. Pursue Jesus. Pursue your identity in him. Hold strong to your allegiance to him. Don't drift away. Don't, because that's the concern, right? Don't drift away. Don't begin to wander off. Don't begin to kind of sell out because suffering and adversity is coming. Consider him. What? Who was tempted. Who was told on the temple mount. Okay? I got another way, Jesus. If you just bow down to me, all these kingdoms can be yours. And Jesus says no. The Bible teaches, and he answers that question, consider him in the midst of that temptation. Consider him, and particularly what the, what the Hebrew writer is saying, I want you to consider Jesus' sufferings. Now hear me, like the fact that he suffered for us, that's not what this text is saying. Here's what's fascinating. It is not, if you look at this text, what aspect of his sufferings is the Hebrew writer trying to focus on? Because this is where we do. Yeah, he suffered for us, so we should suffer for him. You know, that's not what this text is saying. It's not he did, so you can. Because I, I have no problem looking at Jesus and going, yeah, you can do that and I can't. And I'm totally cool with not being able to do what Jesus does. So it's not just, and this is, again, that what is, what is referred to as now moral therapeutic deism, where we're just trying to be good and to feel good about ourselves. That's not good biblical teaching. So the text isn't, Jesus suffered for you, you should return the favor. That's bad theology. Okay? But that's how we preach it, is it not? Is that not how we as preachers preach it? He suffered for you, you can do a little bit for him. Look at what he did for you, you can at least do a little bit for him. Quid pro quo, spirituality. May God have mercy on us. No. Just even in these verses, what is he trying to draw attention to? Look at it again at that verse 9. What is he drawing attention to? Why did Jesus suffer? 2.9. That he might taste death for everyone. Whose idea was that? God's. What did he need to do it, according to verse 9? What did Jesus need in order to do what he was called to do? Here's a great thought. Did Jesus ever need the grace of God? Text says yes. How did he do it? So that by the grace of God. Wow, that's kind of interesting. You ever notice that verse? That Jesus, by the grace of God, might do these things? Again, looking at his humanity and his divinity. So again, it's not Jesus did, you can do it too. Come on, just, right? It's not, hey, you know what? If you just believe in yourself, you can do it too, just like Jesus did. Yeah. What is grace? According, because when you say that, you're, you're meaning something by grace. Yep, that's not what the word grace means. Yeah. The pro, yeah, no, no, that's, a, I mean, I love this, Cindy, because that's, we think of grace as like in need of sin. Grace of God is the gift of God. So the grace of God is the strength of God, the power of God, the presence of God. 
We are so obsessed with our salvation. So obsessed with our salvation. It is all, we have turned our relationships with God into self-exploratory spiritual journeys. It's, it's crazy what we do. I'm reading some fascinating books right now describing how, um, just how corrupt we are in the church and kind of misunderstanding what the concept of grace is. It is that, by the way. I'm not arguing. It is the unmerited favor of God, okay? That is one small aspect of it. Well, the word, I mean, it is, the, it is literally, it is the charis of God, to go back to the Greek. It's the charis, which is what? The word for gift. Like gift, like something you give to somebody. It's kind of what the, the overarching idea is. So when we talk about that God's grace to comes to us through the death of Jesus, what aspect of God's gift comes to us? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's, it, but, I mean, that's a great question. There's a huge, Ryan and Drew are going through it with a past, another pastor here in Stillwater. There's a phenomenal book that came out. It's about this thick. And it, it, it is describing the misappropriated focus that we have on the issue of grace. So the grace of God. That's why we need it beyond our initial salvation. Like we still need the, the grace of God, even though I have the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I still need the grace of God. You know? So Jesus by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It continues to talk about what's going on. And I want you to kind of, I want to end, end, end with this. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear death, who were subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest. By the way, in chapter 3, who ever did that? Moses never did that. Moses never did what Jesus did. A faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so Jesus stayed on track when it comes to the plan of God. Remember that. First, his work. Here is his work. Jesus brought us life. Remember that, and that will give you confidence and hope. How many of you get any confidence when you see Matt Holliday hit a home run and go, I think I could do that too? I have the opposite feeling. I do. I have the opposite feeling. When I see people who are superstars, I think, I so cannot do that. You know what I'm talking about? Same thing with Jesus. When Jesus does stuff, I just, I'm, I'm almost always, I can so not do that. Like, I've never walked up to water and thought I could walk on it. I've never walked up to my sister's wheelchair and went, oh, this will be cake. Watch this. I can make you walk. I've never thought that. I look at my sister's wheelchair and think, I can't do this. I know Jesus can, but I can't do this, okay? So the problem is, is that your suffering does not finding its meaning and purpose by Jesus, who is this great example. We can do it too, because Jesus did it. No, it's Jesus did it for us, therefore I am going to endure. 
Jesus has given me life, therefore I can endure. I can stay in this. Not like him, but because of him. I no longer have a fear of death. I no longer have these things. Why? Because of what he did. And therefore, I'm not going to be able to suffer like him, but I will be able to suffer like him because of what he has already accomplished for me. And that's what the Hebrew writer is saying is, like, I want you to consider this. I don't want you to feel bad about what he did for you. I want you to remember that God has a plan, and Jesus becomes the perfect type of this. God has a plan, and he gives people grace and strength to go through it. Jesus did this. Will he do the same thing for you? Answer, yes. He will do the same thing for you. How do you know he'll do the same thing for you? Well, because he did it for Jesus. Okay. So now, not exactly like Jesus, but perfectly because of what Jesus has already done, I have a whole new level of confidence. So, by the way, where is my confidence in? It's in him. This is why it always fails when I try to put confidence in my sons. I tell my sons all the time, you can't do that. There's no way you could accomplish that. Kidding me. Can't do it. You so can't do it. Let's be honest. You can't do it. Now, by the grace of God and by the strength of God, maybe you can do it. But you so can't accomplish this on your own. You so can't make this on your own. You can't accomplish this on your own. You need God. You really, and I've just decided instead of just going, well, I mean that when I say you're awesome and you can do anything. Really? I don't, know. I don't know if that's how your kids are reading it. I don't know if that's how your grandkids are reading it. At least when they're in my office, they're not reading it that way. You know? So how do we do it? It's like, how do we teach? I mean, when have you ever taught your kids? When have you ever taught your spouse? When have you ever taught your friends that they need to have a greater dependence on Christ and on the reality of who he is and mining the depths of who he is? Our confidence is in Jesus. Our hope is in who? Totally, fundamentally changes the way that we look at our problems, our successes, our failures. Pardon me? Yep. Yep. Well, the power of death is that when you're dead, you stay dead. Like when you're dead, you're dead. No resurrection. So the power of death is predominantly, I think it's, again, going back to the grace idea, it'd be a little bit more than that in terms of how it is described, the power of sin and death in Paul's theology is a little broader than that understanding. But here what we're describing is the power of death, meaning the finality of death. And Jesus Christ walks in and goes, yeah, this isn't an issue, which is fascinating. (laughs) He looks at death and goes, yeah, who can't deal with this? Um, actually, Jesus, you're the only one that can. I added up all the people in the world. It's just you. Isn't that cool? No? Yeah? Well, he destroyed the, I mean, I'll say this real quickly. Jesus destroyed the ultimate work of Satan. 
which is that death is the final say. That's not true. That death would hold no power over us. No, there's life on the other side. The, another big one that Christians don't talk about is that um, it's a, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but not preacher's overstatement, but just the Bible would actually say these things. Like we can, the, the Satan loves to lie, cheat, steal, and deceive. And we cannot be deceived. That's what the Bible teaches. Now hear me. In the context of word of God, people of God, spirit of God, we cannot be deceived. I believe that actually. I believe we cannot be deceived. That's the biggest work of the devil. It's done. Sorry. Jesus exposed you. You're a cheat. Okay, so my challenge to you is think about your life. Think about what aspects you need to consider about Jesus. Spend some time there. Not generic, but real. Mine the scriptures. Find hope and life in them. God bless.